I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to the Goop Podcast, thanks to our friends at Prime Video and their new series, Homecoming. One of the season's most visually striking shows started as a podcast that's unlike any other I've listened to. Homecoming, the cult hit podcast, was created by Eli Horowitz and Micah Bloomberg, and the series, which stars Julia Roberts, debuted last month on Prime Video. In the series, Julia Roberts plays a former caseworker, Heidi, who worked at a facility where they helped soldiers transition back to the everyday. Four years later, Heidi is living another life when a Department of Defense auditor turns up to ask her about why she left her job, which is when Heidi realizes that her past and the stories she's been telling herself are not quite what they seemed. This is the kind of series that begs to be binge-watched. Homecoming is exclusive to Prime Video, so just tune in there to fall down its rabbit hole. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today is the second episode in a three-part special on mental health, and Elise's new guest is psychologist Alex Belser. He's a clinical research fellow at Yale and an adjunct instructor in the Department of Applied Psychology at NYU. In his practice, Alex takes a mind-body-soul approach to his work with clients, And on the research side, he's been involved in some fascinating studies looking at the potential intersection of psychotherapy and psychedelics. What's amazing about it is uh, within a matter of an hour, the person could go from really severe depression. I mean, people not being able to tie their shoes because they're so depressed uh, to being able, a a woman came in, received ketamine-assisted treatment. She was putting on some lipstick and putting her purse over her shoulder, tying her shoes, and and was able to converse and talk again. Elise went to New York and got to ask Alex all about psychedelics and plant medicine and how the mind works, which are her very favorite things to talk about. And today, you'll hear why. But before we get to Alex, Elise is going to tell us about one of our partners. If you've been following Goop for a bit, you'll know we're into essential oils. And if you get our newsletters, then you might have seen the new essential oil diffuser we launched with Vitruvi. The color, called French Grey, was picked out by GP, and it's sort of the defining shade of the company. Vitruvi is a dream company to work with. It's run by siblings Sarah and Sean Panton. They make beautiful stone diffusers that look at home in any office, bedroom, or living space. We like to keep them on our desks, nightstands, and right by the bath. This way, a little pick-me-up is never far away. You just drop a Vitruvi essential oil in to be diffused with water. My favorite Vitruvi scents are probably grapefruit, eucalyptus, and lavender. But whichever essential oils you choose, the diffuser ends up making the air in your space feel like you've just walked into the waiting room of a world-class spa. Between the steam and the sophisticated scent, I always find myself feeling a little more at ease when my Vitruvi diffuser is on in the background. And it's a nice change of pace from your typical candle. This time of year, we have the bergamot and frankincense scents in heavy rotation at Goop, 
And, spoiler alert, a lot of people on our holiday list will be getting a Vitruvi diffuser paired with a box of their essential oils. This also makes a good house gift to bring to friends hosting holiday parties this year. Just head over to Vitruvi.com and you can take 20% off your order with code GOOP20. That's GOOP20. Okay, let's get to today's conversation. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. And I, like most of America now, probably, thanks to Michael Pollan, am both aware of all of the research that has been happening in terms of psychedelics, sort of historically, how it's stalled out, and what has been picked back up, and how promising it is for on, on both the spiritual and psychic level. And, and the promise that it sort of holds. And I know you're in the you're at sort of the forefront of some of the research. So how did you get involved in this? What are you working on and what have you been working on? Well, you know, I, I study psychology and I got into psychology because I thought that it was something that I, I wanted to work with people in a deep way. Mm-hmm. And when I started studying the history of psychology and psychiatry, I, there was this sort of hidden history that hadn't been taught to me in my graduate training, which was in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of research with these psychedelic medicines that sort of disappeared for about 40 years. Uh, we had over 40,000 people take psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms and LSD in hospital and university research settings in the 1950s and 60s. It was a standard part of training for doctors and, mm-hmm. and, and psychologists. And then um, in 1970, uh, the Nixon signed into law the Controlled Substances Act. And things went dark for a long time, Mm -hmm. only to be picked up again, you know, in the late 90s and in the early aughts. uh, A bunch of research came out of Johns Hopkins in 2006 with healthy people. uh, And then it's been picking up steam ever since. I'm happy to tell you a little bit about what we've been finding. But uh, suddenly, you know, it's not just one university. We have dozens of universities around the world uh, publishing and leading journals like Lancet Psychiatry about their findings, working with people, uh, and giving them psychedelic medicine in a supportive context, Mm -hmm. working with usually two therapists. Uh, So for example, at New York University, uh, we've been working with people who have cancer uh, and are anxious about it. You know know what the story of cancer can be like. People Mm -hmm. go through chemotherapy, radiation, surgery. There's oftentimes severe existential distress about what their life is about, what the end of life might be like. The recurrence of cancer causes strain and, and distress. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we started recruiting these people to come and, and work with us. And uh, there's a whole history of working with cancer patients in the 50s and 60s, and we picked that up again. Uh, and these were people that were really distressed, depressed, anxious. And you know, I'd be happy to run you through what, what it is that we, we do with those, those folks when they come to us. Please do. So we, uh, well, first of all, it's hard to recruit for a cancer study. I don't know if you know this, but it, you know, people already have white lab coat syndrome. They don't want to see another doctor. They spend right. all of their days full-time being a full-time patient. But we started uh, putting nurses into our cancer center in NYU and speaking with patients and inviting them to come and talk with us. And what we've decided was uh, we were going to pair two therapists to work with each person, oftentimes a man and a woman, but not necessarily. And they get lots of psychotherapy. So we take a full life history, but also a spiritual history. We want to know, like, what's the relationship like with meaning and existence? Mm -hmm. Then uh, they receive psilocybin. So 
many of the people listening to this podcast may never have heard of psilocybin, right? Maybe you've heard of it as magic mushrooms in college. Maybe you've taken them. And in fact, um, you know, when we were trying to get the study approved and get it through the bureaucracy and the IRB, a lot of people came out of the woodwork who are now in positions of power who had taken psychedelics when they were, you know, in college or in grad school a long time ago, but are now, you know, heading up departments and heading up university uh, research settings. Uh, but psilocybin's a mushroom. It grows on the six inhabited continents of the world. Uh, we know through evidence that it's been used by in every, every one of those continents by people in shamanic and uh, ritual traditions mm -hmm. uh, in various ways, you know, and uh, it's, it's very safe, doesn't cause harm to self or others and a review in The Lancet, um, and it's well tolerated by people. What's interesting about it is it's very, very chemically similar to serotonin. So it, it's operating in the serotonergic system of the body, and uh, a lot of the antidepressants work in the serotonergic system too. But with psychedelics, uh, you only take this medicine maybe once, twice, or three times. You're not taking it every day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about suppressing symptoms. It's about um, having a very profound experience. So we. Uh, we work with our patients. We give them the psilocybin in a beautiful setting. It's a, it's a gorgeous room. There are live plants. There's flowers. There's a glass of water. They can lie down on the couch. Mm -hmm. And then we uh, encourage them to uh, go inside, look deeply inside. So uh, they close, we encourage them to close their eyes. We play uh, a soundtrack of music that doesn't have English language lyrics, but these beautiful songs, driving mm -hmm. songs sometimes, with percussion and voice. And what we found from this trial, and then we, then we give them integrative psychotherapy afterwards so that we help them talk about what happened for them. And people have some really interesting experiences, some even visionary experiences. And I, I, it's part of how I got onto this. I started interviewing people afterward. I wanted to do in-depth interviews with them, much like you're doing here on the podcast, mm -hmm. and try to understand what was it like for you? What, what did you learn? What did you see? What did you make of it? Um, and people shared some really intimate and um, even like wonder, wonderful, strange, sometimes scary, but often um, well-resolved because mm -hmm. they, they felt a, a sense of trust in the room with their therapy team. Uh, and they were able to stare deeply into what was going on in their life. And sort of on a psychic level, because it is, it is spiritual for so many people, right? So, like, can you sort of talk about the, the multiple levels on which it works, sort of on, like, the spiritual journey that people seem to have, and then also what, how that manifests in terms of their demeanor and yeah. their attitude toward life and death? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just in our study, we had uh, 29 people. These are cancer patients. Uh, and we found that uh, at the end of their treatment, and even out to six to eight months later, we uh, found that about 58% of our participants responded to the treatment for anxiety. They mm. had significant reductions in anxiety. And for depression, it was 83%. Mm. Most trials with most medications, where you're only get, they're only getting one psilocybin session, don't have such a massive drop in anxiety and depression. This is as compared to the placebo, where only 14% of people responded at all, which is sort of what you might expect. Right. 
And we also found that in terms of your question about spirituality that people had a variety of benefits. Um, they had improvements in their demoralization related to cancer. They had more hope. They reported greater spiritual well-being. They had improved quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting about this, and they also had other persisting effects, like people reported that they were more altruistic with their, the people in their life, that they were more pro-social in their engagement with other people. Um, they had better and positive attitudes about themselves and also about others. Mm -hmm. And 70% of the people in our trial rated their experience with psilocybin as either the most or among the top five most personally meaningful experiences of their lives. Wow. And so we didn't really know what to make of this. You know, it's, it's really, really quite amazing, but it's concordant with other trials at Johns Hopkins University, at UCLA, um, now at like, places like University of Wisconsin, uh, University of California, uh, San Francisco, Imperial College in London, uh, and in Russia as well. All over the world, this sort of research is happening, and we're finding very similar results. Yeah. And not just for depression and anxiety, but for addiction, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, is a complicated malady. Right. Um, addiction to alcohol. We're working on an alcoholism trial at NYU right now. Uh, smoking, smoking cessation has been extremely effective. In a small trial, 80% of people who were trying to quit smoking cigarettes were able to quit after a dose of psilocybin in support of psychotherapy. Mm. And these are people who'd been trying to quit multiple times. And, you know, we, we were able to tell, even from taking measures at Johns Hopkins, they were able to tell of their breath and their urine to actually say they haven't been smoking. They stopped. Yeah. They actually kicked the habit cold. But also things like you had mentioned before, Ibogaine, which yeah. is a treatment for opiate addiction and the the opiate crisis in America is staggering. It's, a, it's staggering. It's just staggering. And it's blowing people away. And we don't really know how to treat it. Our current ways of treating this, both individually and socially, uh, are falling short in a yeah. variety of ways. It is so exciting that sort of plant medicine and these incredibly ancient antidotes, which seem it seems counterintuitive to treat drugs with drugs in some ways, but that they seem to work on both a sort of biochemical and this spiritual level, and particularly when it's with the integration of talk therapy and other modalities that they are, it is so profound. I mean, the Ibogaine, the fact that it isn't more widely studied, that it isn't available, it seems like some sort of, it seems like a crime, considering that these are people who are literally grappling with death. And I know that's why initially they opened it to cancer patients, right? Because it's like, oh, these people are at the end of their life. How much harm could we potentially do? So it is so wonderful that this research is getting new life breathed into it. So can we, and I thought this was a fascinating part of, of Michael Pollan's book, and I know you can articulate the science probably even better. So what's my understanding is that it works with addiction, depression, anything that's obsessive or rutted mm, mm -hmm. um, because it sort of is lighting up parts of the brain that aren't typically, that have gone dark, is that correct? And that it's the brain starts forming new pathways and it sort of snaps you out of those thought patterns. Is that that's, I think, that's, I think that's, that's a good way to think about it and a good metaphor. And we all, you know, even people who are brain scientists like work in metaphor with the brain all the time because we have to tell a story yeah. about what is happening up there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, what we see in a variety of brain imaging studies is increased functional neuroconnectivity across the different centers in the brain. And there's increased activity in the 
prefrontal cortex, which is our area of making sense, telling stories, access to memory. These sorts of things are, are happening in the brain. But there's a variety of complex things happening. So with the classical serotonergic psychedelics like, like psilocybin, mushrooms, mm -hmm. uh, we see serotonergic activity at the 5-HT2A and 2C receptor sites. And so, you know, there's still a lot of like mystery as to exactly what's going on, but we do find some increased BDNF, which is associated with neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and neuroregeneration in the brain. So when we were kids, we were told that the brain can't regrow nerve cells, but we know that's actually not true. And that um, the neural pruning that happens when you're a child, that you sort of set gets set by your environment and especially for kids that are exposed to neglect or abusive homes that they grow up the idea that your brain's been fixed and we know that that's actually not true mm -hmm. that getting into a rut is not just a behavioral pattern but that the brain can change and forge new pathways and grow even well into our our later years in life uh, and that's really fascinating mm -hmm. um, you know and different psychedelics work in different ways so with ibogaine it has unique chemical properties in the body that for a person who's addicted to opiates, it has, there's 21 active ingredients, compounds in most ibogaine, which is derived from a type of grass and root in, in North Africa and used by the Bawiti and Fang peoples of North Africa. But what's interesting is that it, it, it is active in a variety of ways to actually shut down the body's dependence on opiates, mm -hmm. like quite directly. Yeah. It has its unique properties. Yeah. I mean, I'm involved in a trial with um, a study with MDMA. This is a study that's happening nationally. Uh, it was just granted uh, in this last year breakthrough therapy status designation by the Food and Drug Administration. The same things happened for psilocybin, by the way. So the FDA has actually looked at the science in these phase one and two trials, these sort of smaller trials, and said, wow, these treatments, MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for depression, are actually significantly better than the existing treatments we have for PTSD and for refractory depression, which are very right. difficult to treat. But you know, MDMA works on the amygdala, which is a, a fear center and an anger center in the brain. And people often with chronic PTSD uh, are, are kind of stuck in a trauma loop. They're mm -hmm. scanning their environment for danger. I'm working with a veteran right now who was in Afghanistan and has come back and is still, in some ways, part of his experience of the world is like being on a battlefront. Right. And with the MDMA sessions, for a few hours, his amygdala says, oh, let's turn it down a little bit. Maybe we can access a different way of relating to people like his therapists, a different way of relating to his memories so that he can actually go to the scary places, be there, sit there for a while and not get swept away mm -hmm. or caught up in the, in the fear, right? And actually look at it and bring some heart. Yeah. And is that, healing. Yeah. And does that, does the amygdala stay calm? Or does it start to get agitated again as soon as he leaves? What's interesting is that the amygdala goes back to normal functioning. It doesn't have like a permanent effect right. as far as we know on amygdala functioning. But it's not just about, there's a complementary process, right? It's not just about what happens in the brain. It's about altered, not just altered states of mind, but altered traits. Right. So there's this like window of opportunity for people to change the way they think about themselves. Totally. To have a psychological healing mechanism. And yeah. what we find is that 
in the psilocybin trials, people have a profound spiritual experience. We give them a measure of what we call the mystical experience questionnaire. Right. It's sort of weird to think that you would ask people about their mystical experiences. And, and in science, people... I don't people... think that's weird at all. I work at Goo. <laughs> well, it's funny because you talk to a few... I know you're talking to some scientists here. It's, there's a, it's a head scratcher for a, right. lot, a lot of people in a very strict <laughs> positivist paradigm. that yeah. you don't believe in magic, but some of us do. It feels like magic. Yeah. Because the reality that we inhabit is not necessarily the only reality that we exist in. I mean, and our... some of our reality is a fallacy, like the idea that the PT, like the, the Afghanistan vet is consistently under threat. Like that is his reality, but it is not tethered to another reality, right? But, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And there's this huge, we're not really in this, but this huge burgeoning research in consciousness. What is human consciousness? We've gone to the, we've crossed the seas, we've gone to the moon, we've now landed on Mars just this week mm -hmm. again. There's no more frontier except what it, what it means to be a human person and what it means to be alive and what thinking and existence is. Yeah. And uh, the human brain is an amazing thing. It generates. Right now, listening to this podcast on your headphones or, you know, in your car, it's generating the reality that you're seeing, that you're feeling, that you're hearing. It's, it's not actually there. It's going through sensors in the brain and creating this mm -hmm. fantastically rich reality, which might appear to be very real, but is often... It's, it's coming from your own subjective experience. And with these medicines, which were used traditionally, it accesses, uh, it allows many people to access a different way of being. Totally. Yeah. And it's so considering, you know, and this is something that we take heat for, even though it's strange to me that it's still contested, but it, traditional, we do not have good treatment for depression. And traditional SSRIs do not work for a majority of people, or they work for six months and then they stop working and that at points it seems like they don't necessarily beat placebo and placebo is very powerful but that's right so it's interesting to me too that it took so long that we were so t that we get so attached as a culture to status quo treatments instead of saying this isn't like this isn't that great are there other alternatives out there so it is and that's just one of the reasons that a lot of these trials have been sped through, right? Because the FDA, like, there are not great treatments, and they're desperate. Yeah, Is I, that think, fair? I think there's a, a bit of a crisis in psychiatry about yeah. how to, how to, about medications, the medications that we have don't often work for the a lot of people. They ought, Most of them don't outperform placebo, and placebo is extremely powerful. But and many of the studies that large pharmaceutical companies do go into the file drawer, they're not actually shared. They're right. shared with the FDA maybe, but they're not published in journals. And when you compare those, you know, SSRIs are helpful for some people and SNRIs, but for uh, for most people, they, they fare no better than... Yeah, and they have unwelcome side effects. You know? And they have sexual side effects. And they're addictive. And they have uh, weight gain side effects and other metabolic yeah. side effects. What. You know, and not saying that people don't, I mean, I completely understand and uh, why people take them. People need, like, people need something. And it's, but it's amazing to think that there might be a m much more powerful, transient alternative that sort of allows you to harness your own experience as yeah. well. I yeah. don't know. I think it's very beautiful, if you can't tell. I get very excited about this. <laughs> well, it's, it's a different way of working, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're... As human people, uh, we're accustomed to routine. We mm -hmm. get up, take care of our kids, 
make breakfast, go to work, come home, go to clean up and go to bed, do that day in, day out. And, and uh, our process, our trajectories of developing who we are, both spiritually, physically, in our bodies, in our soma, and in our hearts, and in our relationships with our family, they tend to get into that sort of stuck position. And uh, as a culture, oftentimes we've lost contact with being in ritual spaces and being in connected spaces with each other in different ways. Mm -hmm. So uh, with psilocybin, oftentimes people report that they're able to see things in a new way. They have access to a new way of understanding. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to, I could read a, a quotation from one yes, of, the, from one of the, the women in our trial. Just, yeah. This is a woman with advanced cancer, uh, really a lovely spirit. And, and when I spoke with her, I asked her, what, what was it like to take psilocybin? And she said, I had feelings of being connected to everything. I mean, everything in nature. Everything, even like pebbles, drops of water in the sea, it was like magic. Mm. It was wonderful, and it wasn't like talking about it, which makes it an idea. It was experiential. It was like being inside a drop of water, being inside a butterfly's wing, and being inside of a cheetah's eyes. Worlds fail me. It was just wonderful, wonderful. Mm. And, you know, I have sort of similar quotations from every person that I interviewed. Now, that's not to say that this is a like a lovey-dovey, everything's going to be fine treatment. Oftentimes people went to difficult places. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why we take so many precautions and set so many intentions with the people that we and work with. And the setting with. is obviously key. Yeah. I have a few follow-ups. and But one thing I think that sort of came up too is this idea. I think you were talking about routine and... I think for a lot of us that we've been sort of trained that like you take a pill, like you're on a prescription, right? Like this is something that you take for an extended period of time, whether it's a, a week for an antibiotic or years for an antidepressant and that there's no such thing as profound yet simple change. And I think to have, for people to have an experience and we talk about this all the time, like at Goop, we forget our, our own power for our to change our lives and for our lives to change in a moment. And you think about how many times that your life does change. Like you meet someone and fall in love and like that is the person you spend. Like that happens typically like in a moment. And yet we always think that the, that change or solution is like long and slow and plodding when the reality is it seems like some of the most profound change is often experiential and almost instantaneous. So I think it's, it feels like this stuff feels so connected to the human experience in that way that feels so natural. So I just wanted to, to say that. Yeah. What's next? Like how do, how, I know people are doing microdosing for depression. How, um, how will this ultimately reach the people who also need it? Like, do you need to get into a clinical trial? I know there are like clandestine therapists and shamans across the country who will do this, but I also know that the setting is important. What's going to happen? Well, it's, it's been a little bit of a rough road because the, the federal government really doesn't fund these sorts of trials. So mm -hmm. all of the funding has had to come through private philanthropy and donations. But right now there's uh, underway both in the United States and now in Europe trials for psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for 
uh, depression, for uh, treatment-resistant depression. Uh, and there's a large phase three trial. And when I say phase three, I mean like dozens of sites, hundreds of patients, like these large trials, uh, and uh, also for MDMA. And if these go through, uh, and if we find that the results are, are, are good and, and promising, uh, the FDA will submit the evidence to the FDA, and the, the FDA may grant what's called break, uh, well, they've already done that, but uh, expanded access. So that's where, even though these are still Schedule One drugs, by the DEA, uh, by the scheduling in the United States, meaning they're 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 illegal. Uh, they can be used in this context, and they can be used in this context in an expanded way. Um, but uh, ultimately, it will be, and they won't be prescribable by a doctor in their office. It'll be something where the the person, the patient, would have to go to a clinic that specializes in this, and will work with a therapy team uh, and and get the medicine that way. Um, so we'll see what happens. I mean, the long road. I think that uh, some of the the evidence will be looked at by the DEA and maybe even um, in the legislatures to see if these sorts of medicines can be more easily studied if they were uh, scheduled differently than Schedule 1. And they're typically like there's nothing addictive about really any of them, right? Yeah, that's right. So Schedule 1 implies a high potential for abuse and that there's no redeeming medical value. And psychedelic drugs have extremely low potentials for abuse. Some of them are um, you know, in animal models, they don't, you know, repeat administration. Uh, people tend not to have difficulty with addiction at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, we find that they have anti-addictive properties to addictive drugs like cocaine and alcohol. And we find that they do have redeeming medical value. We're hoping that the evidence will, will you know, be seen. Do you think that Big Pharma is sort of tackling this problem, like, in their own way and working on some sort of, like, manufactured Plant. I mean, how how do you take plant medicine? Who's going to patent something that exists? It's one of the problems, right? You know, we we live in a society where if you don't have a good profit motive, there's not. It's going to be hard to bankroll a trial that costs tens of millions of dollars to get through. So there's some structural impediments. Yeah. Um, You know, plant. You know, mushrooms grow around the world, right? For for example, but. we have to provide uh, CGMP, like good manufactured product, psilocybin. Mm-hmm. It has to be uh, exactly the same product in the, exactly the same pill. Um, and you can't patent it because it was in, you know, discovered long ago, many decades ago. So yeah. uh, there's, that's why a lot of this is happening for, out of not-for-profits, uh, and a lot of this work is happening uh, funded by people who believe that this is important to bring uh, and share with the world. Big Pharma, there are some interesting trials looking at uh, trying to find out if there's a way to develop compounds that don't have some of the more psychedelic properties, like changes in your perception, Mm -hmm. visionary states, but may have beneficial uh, properties in the body. Uh, So maybe we could develop a drug that helps people with opiate addiction, but without having to go through a psychedelic initiation ritual, which is traditionally how it's been used, for example, in uh, ritual settings, or have to go through this sort of experience. And we'll see whether that happens. I, I think that the psychological experience of going through something really potentially profound is is part of the work. I agree. Yeah, there. Uh, I think her name is Dr. Mash, and she's at the University of Miami, and she has worked in a lot of Ibogaine clinics. We've, we've done, um, a, we did a story with her on the site, and she was working, she sort of acknowledges how powerful and important this the 24-hour trip is. Yeah. So like, for those who don't know how Ibogaine works, 
you go to a, there are no clinics in the United States, obviously, but there are clinics in Mexico and Canada. And if you're in deep addiction, you go, they administer Ibogaine, you have this very hardcore 24 hour trip that's not unlike ayahuasca, like there's vomiting and it's unpleasant, but you have like a life review and this deeply spiritual experience. But then on a physical level, it blocks your addiction receptors and eases withdrawal. And then Mm -hmm. it seems to give people like around three months to change their patterns, start exercising and get sort of reinvent their lives as a clean and sober person just gives them like a a big head start off the starting block and um so she's working to try to isolate to t- be able to pull the psychedelics out so that it is more palatable that's right but it's been a few years since i mean it was before i feel like there's been this huge resurgence i haven't spoken to her in a few years that maybe that work can go on with the psychedelic component I, th- I think it might. And, you know, it's not just things like Ibogaine. I mean, I used to work in a psychiatric ER here in New York City. People come in, they're they're suicidal. What, mm-hmm. How do you help them? I mean, right. you put them on a suicide watch, you have somebody sit next to them, make sure they don't hurt themselves. But in the past, if you give them most conventional treatments, it takes two to four to six weeks to kick in. You know, you have to, like, keep watching them. But uh, we're doing a lot of trials out of Yale and uh in New York and in other places looking at a, a psychedelic medicine called ketamine, yeah, which is being used in psychiatric ERs. What's amazing about it is uh, it within a matter of an hour, the person could go from really severe depression. I mean, people not being able to tie their shoes because they're so depressed uh, to being able, a, a woman came in, received ketamine assisted treatment. She was putting on some lipstick and putting her purse over her shoulder, tying her shoes, and and was able to converse and talk again. And this happens very quickly. But it gives you a little bit of window of time. It doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily last forever, but it gives you an opening to to make a shift in your life. And that that requires some will and some agency and maybe a little bit of support. That's why all of these trials are not just about the medicine or the drug. They're about uh, preparation beforehand with your therapist, uh, having a safe and trusting alliance with your team when you're doing the work and then really doing the integration afterward. Totally. Yeah, no, I think there's no it's not a panacea, right? Like it's not Ibogaine, it's not like you take it and you no longer are an addict, right? But it does it gives you the space and like maybe some life perspective yeah. in order to actually do the work. Yeah. Um which I think is it just it's a chance which i think a lot of these people haven't had let's take a quick break we'll be right back gp sold me on the prime video series homecoming when she interviewed julia roberts for the goop podcast julia roberts stars in the series and is also an executive producer on it as gp said it's a series that quite literally pushes you to the edge of your seat but it's not scary per se The whole time you're trying to figure out what exactly you're watching and how the mystery of the story will unfold. The tone is so unique. It's directed by Sam Esmail, who also brought us Mr. Robot and who is clearly brilliant. In the series, Julia Roberts plays a former caseworker, Heidi, who worked at a center where they helped soldiers transition back to the everyday. Four years later, Heidi has started a new life where she works as a waitress and lives in a small town with her mom, who is played by the very brilliant Sissy Spacek. Heidi doesn't talk about why she left the homecoming transitional support center, and it's all you want to know. 
When a Department of Defense auditor turns up to ask Heidi about the center, things get interesting. As the series cuts back and forth between Heidi's past and present, it becomes clear that there's an entirely different story behind the one she's been telling herself. Julia Roberts is crazy good in this series, and you just have to watch it to unravel the story yourself. Homecoming is exclusive to Prime Video, so be sure to tune in there. Okay, let's get back to Alex. Do you feel like it's appropriate? I am as obsessed as I am with all of this. I'm also terrified of drugs. Yeah. So Wait, I say more. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just, my dad told me a story when I was young about he loved, you know, dibbling and dabbling here and there. And uh-huh, he yeah. had a bat, I think it was LSD, and he was in Amsterdam and he spent the night hugging a pole. Maybe it was Venice, I, somewhere because he was convinced he was going to. He was sliding into the canal. That sounded so unfun that I... That is not, that is not the sort of vacation you want in Venice. No. And Amsterdam. so I really have been always... And I'm a control freak. So to me, I'm like, I don't even know if these things would work on me. And I'm, I'm scared to let go. But I, I really do want to try it. And do you think it's appropriate for people who are not depressed... I mean, I definitely have my own anxieties, but, Mm -hmm. or do you, I know you're, you probably can't say because you're a doctor, but do you see this having wider um, appeal and application than in a clinical? Well, there's a long history of it being used. (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. No, not just with, (laughs) with patients with clinical issues like depression, anxiety, or PTSD, but with healthy, regular old people who want to use it to... Um, spark creativity, to do a life review, to like touch base with their life. And so a lot of the the research is with healthy, normal people. And a lot of it is with meditators, too. Mm. So we work with long-term meditators. uh, And there's some interesting neural correlate uh, parallels between people who do long-term meditative work and people with uh, who take psychedelics. So Mm. you... And I want to come back around to your dad's story, yeah, because it's, I think it's a really important thing to come to look at. But you had asked me earlier about what happens in the brain, and you said that you have a fear of losing control, right? You know, we live in a world where we, where we aren't in control, but it, it's it's fun to think that we have control over a right. lot of it's things. A total right? And part of the, the the system in the brain is the default mode network. It's mm-hmm. sort of like a complex system in the brain where it's associated with the ego or the idea of having a self and having control. And for a lot of people with psychedelics, it sort of relaxes the DMN and they start to understand that who they are is not necessarily just this tiny point between their eyes in the back of their head, but is actually their whole body, right. that they're actually more deeply connected to the world in a different way. And that as satisfying as it is to think that we are in control of our destinies, it's actually profoundly more satisfying for some people to realize in some ways we're completely not in control and mm-hmm. to surrender deeply to that and to fall into that and be, be held in a, in a much broader way. Yeah. You know, for people who and, and I don't encourage people to take psychedelics in an unregulated, you know, totally. street setting in a foreign country <laughs> where you don't necessarily know what yeah. you're getting. You're not working with somebody who understands and it has experience. It was a experience. terrible idea. <laughs> and I, and we, I think many people have heard stories like that, and, and they are scary. And yeah. uh, that's one of the things that, you know, we... 
there, there's, there's many ways to do this sort of work, and it, it really should be done with somebody who understands what they're doing. And in the, the clinical trials that we're doing at NYU and in our MDMA site, we're working with skilled people who've, mm-hmm. who've done this before, who've been trained, who have support and supervision. Um, have, I don't know if you can answer this question, but have you, are most of these people, have they also done it so they understand the experience from it in a deeper level and can help? Yeah. So, for example, the, the trial with MDMA, part of the training involves letting the, the therapist, who's usually a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, go and take MDMA themselves. These are people who don't have PTSD. They're healthy clinicians with two people so that they know what it's like to sit in the patient's shoes and to take the medicine and, and we can realize how, how hard the work is, how like rigorous and and straining it can be, but also how, what's possible and what's, what's, what's potential there. So it's one of the few sorts of works where the people who are training to administer the psychedelic medicine often are given an experience where they can take the medicine themselves uh, so that they can enter subjectively into the person's experience. Totally. Which I think is so interesting, too, because traditionally when you're talking to it, they have to maintain this place of extreme objectivity, which I think is not how we relate as humans. And it's interesting that that whole relationship is Right. And most psychiatrists haven't taken, you know. Right. Lexapro, Prozac, (laughs) Abilify themselves. Right. right? um, So this this is a little bit different. What about bipolar? I mean, that feels like the most intransigent and and also deeply common mental illness. Is there anything that's happening that's promising for, you know, I have friends who are bipolar and it is, it's like a ter- they're on a terrible cocktail plus some weed. Like it doesn't seem like there's anything. Is there anything? Well, you know, right now there aren't any psychedelic medical trials looking at bipolar disorder. It's mm-hmm. more about unipolar disorder uh, of depression. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, in fact, we uh, advise people who have a history of mania that they really shouldn't be participating in these trials because it would it might be really concerning if somebody had a manic episode as part of their treatment. Yeah. But I think it's something that in the next few years people will look at and maybe maybe we'll be able to study a little bit more. And have some more solutions. Yeah. yeah it feels like a real no man's land of oh, yeah. terrible options. Yeah. You know, I it, back when I was um, at Columbia doing a master's degree, I looked at uh, different sorts of treatments for bipolar disorder, things like interpersonal social rhythm therapy, where you wake up at the same time every day, you go to bed at the same night to regulate your schedule. You know, you, you, you honor the body's circadian rhythms mm-hmm. so that you get into the, to the flux and you look for signs of a, of a manic episode and depression before it sets in or a mixed episode, which is even more complicated. That works pretty well for many people, but it's a lot of work. And yeah. um, and I think that we're still kind of holding our hands open, hoping that there's a better psychotherapeutic or medical treatment, treatment for, for bipolar disorder. So I know one of the things that originally sort of shut down, like, you know, psychedelics weren't associated with psychedelia historically. Like it was an innocuous name before it sort of got all of the social assignments that it did in the 60s and 70s. And I know that the idea, at least this is what I gleaned from Michael Pollan's book, was that if everyone from the top echelons of government to to every citizen was somehow exposed to a psychedelic agent, we would live in a more humane, loving, compassionate world where we better understood how we're all connected and all connected to nature. Mm. Like, is that is that the dream? 
<laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Or you're, let's just start with people who are dying from a cancer. <laughs> well, we have to ask ourselves, what, what is our dream for our future? We're living in trying times, and you know, I'm doing my piece as a psychologist who's mm-hmm. working with people. But I haven't lost hope that we can really make profound changes in the way that we care for each other in the world. And, you know, the assignments that you were talking about when the, when the drug laws were passed were really about social control. They were about, um, we have like historical record of Nixon saying we need to like write laws that are going to help us in, in, in the race relations with African-Americans that lead to a massive drug war and massive incarceration in the United States. We will we'll criminalize cannabis and psychedelics and turn it against the hippie culture, the anti-war protesters. Um, and so it really demonizes and stigmatizes these drugs as a form of social control. Mm-hmm. And if you look back in human history, way back, even in the Western tradition, you see uh, people like Plato and Socrates took psychedelic medicine, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the Eleusian Mysteries, they were called at the time, and they, they drank a drink called the Kaikion. Way back in history, this is part of their training. We see this in Native American cultures in Latin America and South America, Peru and the Amazon Basin. We see this in North Africa. We see this in uh, the Rig Veda, spiritual texts of mm-hmm. ancient India, people uh, singing hymns of praise to uh, a plant medicine, um, Soma which Aldous Huxley uh, picks up again when he writes about his experiences with psychedelics um, so love, uh, in such a loving way um, in the middle of the century. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's possible to reclaim our own lineage as people. I think it's possible for people of all colors and all genders to, to really look deeply at what it's like to heal. Mm-hmm from trauma uh, and to do that together. And I don't know that plant medicines are the answer to that, but I, um, I have seen it work for some people in a really beautiful way, and I'm happy to be a part of that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. Alex's work and the ongoing research on psychedelics is fascinating. You can learn more about Alex at his site, centerforbreakthroughs.com. And you can also see more on psychedelics at goop.com slash the podcast. That's it for this episode of the Goop podcast. If you have a chance, please rate, review, and let us know what you think. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends. For more info, check out goop.com slash the podcast. See you soon.